Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. In this audio, I am continuing our look at the book of Jude, the one chapter of the book of Jude. In our last audio, I covered verses 1 through 8, which I entitled Lessons from History for False Prophets. These false prophets that were bedeviling Jude's readers were people who were designated for condemnation, ungodly. They perverted the grace of God into sensuality. They denied Jesus Christ. They denied authority. They indulged in sexual immorality. They they were going to undergo a punishment of eternal fire. They relied on their fleshly dreams. They defiled their flesh, sexual immorality and impurity. They rejected authority. They blasphemed angels. Real pieces of work, these guys. So Jude is going to continue on with delivering historical examples to show what happens to people like this. They get judged. And so we start now in Jude chapter 1, verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Now, actually, this is a bad place to start. I ran out of time last audio, and I had to stop right in the middle of this section about historical examples used against the false teachers, and particularly bad as I stopped right after verse 8. So let me go back and pick up verse 8. Nevertheless, these dreamers likewise defile their flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme glorious ones. Now, the blaspheming glorious ones, I'm going to take glorious ones as angels, that is what is being referred to in verse 9. These false teachers blaspheme angels, and Jude is going to take up on that idea and say, hey, even Michael the archangel didn't blaspheme Lucifer, who a bad angel. And Satan, the number one evil angel in the world, Michael didn't abuse him, didn't rail against him. And so the idea is if Michael respected the devil's former position of authority so much in that way, well, then surely these false heretics ought to quit not respecting authority, both human and angelic, in the churches. And that's where he's going with this. And so we read verse 9. Yet Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil in a debate about Moses' body, did not be- dare bring an abusive condemnation against him, but said, The Lord rebuke you. And notice here, it's Michael didn't rebuke the archangel personally, but he did rebuke the archangel using the Lord's authority. Again, the purpose of this is to contrast the false prophets who reviled angels, as Michael did not revile the bad angel Satan. Now, there are two opinions as to who this Michael the archangel is. Some people say he's Jesus. John Gill mentions that in favor of this. Adam Clark gives a quotation, quote, The word Michael, and he gives the Hebrew word for Michael, seems to be compounded of me, who, Hebrew word for who, ka, Hebrew word for like, and el, Hebrew word for God. So it comes out as who, like God, who is like God. And so people from that understand this to be the Lord Jesus. And backing that up, of course, is Jesus the head of all angels, and that's why he'd be called archangels. Arch is a Greek word for head, and he's the head of all the angels. Well, I don't believe that. I believe it's Michael Archangels. Archangel. Jameson Fawcett Brown agrees with me on that. He says there's only one place in Scripture where archangel is used, and it shows that Michael cannot equal Jesus. Now, even though Jameson Fawcett Brown agrees with my position on this, I don't think his argument is holds is, is watertight, but let's look at it anyway. First Thessalonians 4.16. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice. Now, it sounds like the Lord is descending from heaven with a shout, and then the archangel shouts out with his voice. So it makes it sound like there's two different people, according to Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Now, it seems to me that although that's possible, it could also be possible that the Lord himself descends from heaven with a shout, that, and then with the archangel Jesus' voice, the same shout, the rest of the events carry on. So I don't think that's an argument in favor of the fact that Michael cannot equal Jesus. I think it's reasonable that people say that Michael equals Jesus, but I just don't think. It seems to me that, that Jude would have said Jesus when he was disputing with the devil, not Michael the archangel. Why would you say Michael the archangel? And by the way, in that quotation in 1 Thessalonians 4.16, Paul refers to the archangel's voice. Why the archangel? Because there's only one. There can only be one head of the angels, that's Michael. And so that's how you know that's Michael. Michael's voice. Well, other people just believe it's the archangel, archangel Michael because that's what it says. Yet Michael the archangel, and that's the view I'm going to take. Yet Michael the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil, the Greek word for disputing makes it sound like a legal contest. And so this... The archangel. Notice that the archangel not only is in First Thessalonians 4.16, but it's also in Jude 1.9, yet Michael, the archangel. As Adam Clark says, the word archangel is never found in the plural in the scriptures because there can only be one head of the angels, and I think that's reasonable. All right, so there's a debate going on between Michael, the archangel, and the devil. A debate about what? About Moses' body. Now, I'm going to give you some options as to what that could possibly mean. I've got four options. This is highly speculative. There's a lot of stuff in here that's highly speculative in this whole Jude passage. But let's start it with who is the body or what is the body of Moses? Well, the first option is the fleshly, literal body of Moses. James I, Fawcett and Brown affirms that. Now, why would the devil be fighting with Michael about Moses' body, which is buried there on Mount Pisgah? Why would the devil be fighting about that? Well, here's the reasoning. The idea is that Michael did not want the devil to be, did not want Moses to be resurrected. He wanted Moses to stay buried and unresurrected so the Israelites would be tempted to worship Moses. In other words, it's like Calvin did, and Aquinas didn't let people know where they were buried so people wouldn't worship them. The idea is the people of Israel wanted to bury Moses there and then kind of make a shrine of it so everybody would know where Moses was. And the devil said, that's great because that'll promote idolatry. So let's just keep Moses buried and unresurrected there in the sands of Pisgah. And I find that hard to believe, but that's the way the idea goes. And by the way, this is standard. A lot of people quote this theory. And another possible reason why the devil wanted to keep Moses buried and unresurrected is because of Moses' sin. Adam Clark mentions this. What sins? Well, Moses killed an Egyptian and, of course, his sin at Meribah when he struck the rock in anger. Now, Compelling Truth, which is a great website, comes from gotquestions.org. They say that those are the two possible reasons why the devil might want to keep Moses unresurrected in the ground there. And Michael is trying to say, nope, Moses is going to get resurrected. Now, this is an incredibly speculative idea. And the problem I have with it is, well, the resurrection hasn't occurred yet for anybody. So how can Michael be fighting about whether Moses' body is going to be resurrected or not? That hasn't happened now in the, in the year 2020. There's been no resurrection, so how can Michael be fighting over whether Moses' body be resurrected or not? Now, against that objection, Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown point out that, in their opinion, Moses' body was raised. He appeared with Jesus at the Transfiguration, 
And so the devil lost the argument with Michael. And this appearance at the, at the transfiguration was an earnest of the final resurrection. Well, I question that. I question whether that was Moses' final resurrection body that appeared in the Mount of Transfiguration. It could have been a non-corporeal, quote-unquote, body, a spiritual body, as people say. I mean, after all, we go to heaven. How people, how are we going to recognize each other in heaven until the final resurrection? We go there because, because we got some kind of body. So that's the first option. Why? Of what? Moses' body was his fleshly body. Here's option number two. This is my speculation. What about Moses' spiritual body in heaven? The devil fighting Michael over that? Well, what would they be fighting about? That's total speculation. I don't believe that's it. Here's a third option suggested by Gill and Clark. Michael was arguing with the body of Mosaic law. Not the physical body of Moses, but the body of Mosaic law. Now, this is an interesting idea. I think it's a little far-fetched. But to support this view, Gill and Clark quote Zechariah 3, 1 through 2. Then he showed me Joshua the high priest. This is at the return from the exile, post-exilic construction of the temple and so forth. Remember, the two principal characters was Zerubbabel, the high priest, excuse me, Joshua, the high priest, and Zerubbabel, the governor, the spiritual and civic civic leaders of Israel. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing, I'm assuming that's God, showed Zechariah, Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord. Let's assume that's Jesus. So Joshua, standing before Jesus, was standing at his right hand to accuse him. Now, remember, some people say that they, that Michael was Jesus. So here's the here's the way the argument goes. This angel of the Lord is Jesus is Michael's. Satan is standing at the right hand of Michael to accuse him. Then the Lord said to Satan, that would be the Lord, the angel of the Lord, Michael says to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. The Lord rebuke you, Satan. May the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. That's pretty clever. But you notice that it makes a lot of assumptions. First, the angel of the Lord has to be Jesus. And then Michael has to be Jesus. But at any rate, Gill and Clark say that what happens here, you got Joshua, the post-exilic high priest. He's representing the Jews. They've often violated the law, and thus Satan is accusing Joshua and saying, you Jews deserve to go to hell, to go to hell. And so the devil is disputing with Moses, in other words, with the law of Moses, about Moses' body of law. So let me just point out the weaknesses once again. You've got to assume that Jesus is the angel of the Lord, which is okay. Then you got to assume that Jesus is Michael the high priest. That's pretty iffy. And then you got to assume that Joshua the high priest stands for Moses. Moses is not explicitly mentioned in this verse. That's the weaknesses. The strength of this position is that the Lord said to Satan, or Michael the archangel, if you want to put it that way, said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, Satan. And those are the exact same words that Jude uses, the Lord rebuke you. But now notice Jesus that says the Lord rebuke you. It doesn't say Michael the archangel. You have to assume that Jesus equals Michael the Archangel. Well, that's a lot of highfalutin theology. For option number three, Michael is disputing with the body of Mosaic law, not with Moses' physical, literal body. Option number four is somewhat related. This is from Jameson, Fawcett, and Brown. Moses is disputing, excuse me, Michael is disputing with the devil over the Jewish church, the body of Moses. Just as the body of Christ means the Christian church, so the body of Moses means the Jewish church. Now, that's a stretch, if you ask me. Michael is said to be the special protector of Israel, and so he's protecting Israel when he's fighting the devil. And people who hold to this view quote Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, the verses I just read, to support this theory as well. In other words, 
when the devil in Zechariah 3, 1 and 2, when the devil is attacking or accusing Joshua the high priest, he's not really attacking just the law. He's attacking the whole nation of Israel or, or as the Jameson Fawcett and Brown says, the Jewish church. So those two theories are fairly related. And of course, the same weaknesses apply. Neither Michael or the body of Moses is actually mentioned in the passage. That's just an assumption. You have to reason your way to there. And dispensationalists will please forgive me for calling it the Jewish church. That's what Jameson Fawcett and Brown call it. New Covenant theology people will have to forgive me too, because I don't believe you should call the Old Testament people of God the Jewish church. It's Israel, the old Israel. But at any rate, that's your fourth option as to who Michael and the devil were arguing over. In my opinion, all of it is so speculative that it doesn't matter, because I'm going to say later on that wherever Jude quotes from, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, he's not necessarily quoting about the truth of an actual incident where Michael is fighting with the devil. He's just using it to make a point. But we'll get to that in a minute. Well, we'll get to it right now. Where did you get this quote from? It's not in the scriptures, John Gill points out. Adam Clark says this quote, What this means I cannot tell, or from what source St. Jude drew it, unless from some tradition among his countrymen. So I'm going to give you some opinions as to where Jude got this interesting quotation from. This is the source often, most often suggested, starting with Origen back in the 3rd century. It's an apocryphal book, now lost, called The Ascension of Moses. Now, John Gill says it's not likely, and I've, the most modern articles of learned scholars on this, they don't really, they're not really sure. They don't, they don't sound, they don't make any confident claims that this is really what Jude is quoting from, The, the Ascension of Moses. Here's what Origen said. The archangel Michael, when disputing with the devil regarding the body of Moses, says that the serpent being inspired by the devil was the cause of Adam and Eve's transgression. The problem with that, quote, the Origen made is that Michael's talking about the body of Adam, not the body of Moses. When you go back and look at the apocalypse, uh, excuse me, the assumption of Moses. And there's another problem, too. Origen, Origen, even though he quoted the assumption of Moses or the ascension of Moses, there was another book called The Apocalypse of Moses that he might have gotten confused with because Apocalypse of Moses does have a dispute over a body, but the problem with that is is Michael's fighting with Satan over the body of Adam, not the body of Moses. Okay, so you see how sketchy that is. And, of course, another option is he just got it from Jewish tradition somewhere that we don't know about. But that's not the important thing. It's where he got the book from, the quotation from. That's not the important thing. The important thing is is the story true or not? And that's what I've always wondered about. Now, Compelling Truth, a website I respect because it comes from gotquestions.org, says, yes, it is true because it sounds like Job is quoting it as truth when he quotes it. But the other opinion is, no, it is not true that Michael ever contended with Satan over the body of Moses, but rather Jude is just quoting that story from wherever it came just to make a point. And the point being that it's not good to rail against authority. And that's the view I've come to. Here's a quote from Muin Carson, quote, He, Jude, may very well believe that the story about Moses' body and Enoch's prophecy is, are true. So Muin Carson concede that, yeah, it is possible that Jude thought it was true, but this does not mean that it regards everything in either of the books concerned as true, and that goes without saying. But the question is, is does Jude believe that that particular story was true, not all the other stuff around Enoch's prophecy, which we'll get to in verse 14, or the assumption of Moses, is, if it's the assumption of Moses that he got it from. Obviously, he's not saying that everything is true. But the question is, is, is he quoting this one point here and believes that's true? 
Moo and Carson continue, and it is even possible that Jude simply cites this material because it is well known to his audience without himself making any commitment to its truthfulness. Well, I believe that's what's going on here, because it's so impossible to tell what Michael and the devil were doing arguing over the body of Moses. I, I told you what the options are, and they're all of them so somewhat unbelievable. I wouldn't bet my life on any of them. So I think that's what the case is, is he just quote, quoting the story to make a point. Just like Paul quoted several times from pagan authors. That didn't mean Paul believed. Well, Paul obviously didn't believe everything the pagan author said, but he did believe the point he was trying to make. So this is not exactly apropos. He quoted three times from pagan authors, Aratus, Menander, and Epimenides. Aratus in Acts 17, we live and move and exist. We're also his offspring. Menander, do not be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. That's in 1 Corinthians 15:33. And Epimenides in Titus 1:12, one of their own prophets, the Cretans' own prophets, said Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So, whether Jude believed that Michael actually fought with the devil over the body of Moses, he did not believe that his source was inspired. He just uses them for an illustration. I don't even believe he believes the story happened, in my humble opinion. All right, moving on from those difficult problems, we look at the word dare in our verse here, verse 9. Michael did not dare bring an abusive condemnation against the devil. Does that mean he was afraid of the devil? No, he was afraid of stepping outside of authority. He was afraid of abusing authority, which is the main point here. These false teachers are abusing authority, and Michael didn't dare to abuse authority. But he wasn't scared of the devil. Michael didn't dare to bring an abusive condemnation against him. Now, he's, Jude is making an a fortiori argument here. If Michael doesn't dare to condemn the authority of a fallen angel who's the number one fallen angel of all times, the devil himself, the evil, demonic, well, obviously he's demonic, satanic, I should say, angel who's going to end up in the lake of fire for eternity, if Michael can't even condemn him because of Satan's form position of authority over Michael, well then by golly, maybe the false prophets ought not to condemn authority, the church authority that they're condemning. So Michael, instead of condemning authority, he says, the Lord rebuke you. He appeals to a higher authority than the devil. He says, the Lord rebuke you. And of course, that makes sense. That's why when we cast out demons today, we don't say, I cast you out. We say, in the name of Jesus Christ, I cast you out. The Lord rebukes you, not me personally. That would be pretty dumb. Now, when Michael said the Lord rebuke you against the devil, some people have made an extremely erroneous application of that. And they say that Christians are not supposed to exorcise demons today. Here's a quote from gotquestions.org, which is a website I just commended to you just a few seconds ago. And now I'm telling you they've got something here that's absolutely ridiculous. Here's the quote. If as powerful a being as Michael deferred to the Lord in dealing with Satan, who are we to attempt to reproach? cast out or command demons. Who are we? Well, look at the disciples. Did they cast out or command demons? Jesus told them to go out and cast out demons. As you go, preach, saying the kingdom of God is here, heal the sick, and cast out demons. We're not supposed to do that today. That's because we're supposed to be a, a, a neutered cessationist church that's scared to death of the devil and can't cast out a demon when it's necessary. I personally have cast out demons, and I've seen them cast out. And I'm telling you, I mean, not that it's pleasant, but I didn't do it on my own. I said, in the name of Jesus, in the name of Jesus, by the blood of Jesus, which is the same thing as saying, the Lord rebuke you, the Lord rebuke you. In other words, you say, in the name of Jesus, I cast you out, not 
I cast you out, demon, because you were evil and dirty. You know, you don't do that. It's in the name of Jesus. So let's don't get the wrong idea from this verse. Now we go to verse 10 and 11 from Jude 1. But these people, these false prophets, blaspheme anything they don't understand, what they know by instinct like unreasoning animals. They destroy themselves with these things. Woe to them, for they have traveled in the way of Cain, have abandoned themselves to the era of Balaam for profit, and have perished in Korah's rebellion. Now blaspheme, of course, means to make dirty, to make profane things which are holy, and it's probably referring here, Jude's probably referring here to the angels that these false prophets blasphemed in verse 8. They spoke against, they reviled the glorious ones in verse 8. And so they didn't understand what they were doing. They did it like unreasoning in animals because by instinct, animals do things without thinking. These people without thinking revile authority. They just do it instinctually. And then they destroy themselves by doing that. They don't understand. These people blaspheme anything they don't understand. That would mean mainly authority. Church authority, divine authority. And as a result, they destroy themselves with these things. Now, like unreasoning animals without thinking, I said there might be a, a hint of sexual immorality in there because in verse 7, the false prophets were compared to the folks of Sodom and Gomorrah, the homosexuals, the sexual immorality and perversions of these homosexuals who tried to seduce angels. And they defile their flesh in verse 8. That's kind of what animals do they kind of fornicate without thinking about it too much either they might jude might have meant that or it could mean they just do what they do without thinking as they revile authority second peter 2:12, the parallel passage has this but these people like irrational animals creatures of instinct born to be caught and destroyed there's that destruction idea <laughs> you're going to do this you're going to be destroyed they speak blasphemies about things they don't understand and in their destruction they too will be destroyed there's that word three times destroyed so Christians, don't worry about these false teachers. They're going down. Always a hint of optimism when we have all this horrible satanic conflict. The gospel writers don't leave it to chance that Christians think they're going to get beat. We're not going to get beat. We might have to go through a horrible war or a horrible fight, but we're going to win the fight. Now, here's some historical examples of destruction for the false prophets. Number one, in verse 11, the way of Cain. Now, who was Cain? Of course, he was the first murderer. He murdered his brother Abel either because he was arrogant or because he didn't want to offer bloody sacrifices like Abel did. But the point is, is that he was a murderer. And these false prophets have abandoned themselves to the era of Balaam for profit. Now, this is the second example, historical example, of what happens to false prophets. Balaam was a false prophet. He was hired by Balak, the king of Moab, as the Israelites were coming up from Egypt, from the, actually from Kadesh Barnea, as they were wandering around in the desert. And they decided to go to the east of the Dead Sea. They ran into Moab, and Moab says, why don't you go around? And Moses said, no, nah, we'd rather go through if you'd let us. We're not going to hurt you, but that's a long way around in that desert. And so Balak's concerned. And so he, called, he hires Balaam, who was up near Syria, if I remember correctly. And Balaam was going to come down and curse the Israelites. But then the donkey was riding, turned around and said, hey, let me read that for you. Well, I don't have the quote in Genesis, unfortunately. But you remember the story. I forgot exactly what the donkey said to him. But... The donkey rebuked him and said, we're not going any further with this nonsense. All right, so that's the example. Now, what was the point of the analogy with Balaam? Well, first of all, it's Balaam's desire for money. He was not preaching the truth of God because he was doing going there to make money from Balak. And that's why Jude mentions right here the era of Balaam for profit. They have These false teachers have abandoned themselves to the era of Balaam for profit. They're making money off of you guys. And that's typical. False teachers often made money. And that's, I believe, is why the early church apostles never, or preachers, 
itinerant ministers would not take money from those they were preaching to because they didn't want to be accused of doing what the false teachers are doing. They didn't want to be like Balaam who was operating for profit. Would that certain TV preachers I know today would follow that principle, not only TV preachers, but a lot of other people too that do that. They open themselves up to being charged with the heir of Balaam for profit, even though they're not doing it, even though they're spending the money properly. It doesn't look good when you do that. You've got to be very careful. The third example, historical example of what happens to rebels, false prophets, is Korah's rebellion. That, of course, is the famous rebellion with Korah decided he was going to be a better leader than Moses, and God took care of that by opening up the ground under Korah and his minions, and they all fell into the crack of the earth and were destroyed. Let me go back to Balaam. I actually left something else out I wanted to say here. First of all, on the point of Balaam prophesying for money, this was a common thing, apparently. Isaiah 56.11 says this, These dogs have fierce appetites. They never have enough. And they are shepherds who have no discernment. All of them turn to their own way, every last one for his own gain. So you've got false shepherds of the people of Israel, like you have false shepherds in the Church of Christ, who are in it for their gain. They think that godliness is a means of prosperity. Well, that's what the first point, as I pointed out, that Balaam was in it for the money. But also, it's interesting that Balaam got rebuked by a lowly donkey. And the idea is these false prophets were dumbasses just like Balaam was, because Balaam was a dumbass prophet who got rebuked by a dumbass. <laughs> so the false teachers were just as stupid as Balaam was. Ah, here's the quote. I couldn't find it a minute ago. In Numbers 22:28. Then the Lord opened the donkey's mouth, and she asked Balaam, What have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times? So this high and mighty prophet, high dollar prophet, gets rebuked by a lowly ass. And so he was stupid. And that's the idea. So Balaam, these false prophets that Judah's fighting against are in it for the money and they're stupid. And they have perished. There's again the idea of destruction in Korah's rebellion. Just as Korah rebelled against Moses' authority, the false prophets are rebelling against their current church authority. As the NIV Study Bible says, Jude may be suggesting the false teachers were, were rebelling against church leadership. I think they're exactly right about that. That's what they were doing. And the implication, is, or not the implication, the statement by Jude is very clear. Destruction is coming to them. Destruction, destruction, destruction. Chapter, Jude chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. These are the ones who are like dangerous reefs at your love feast. They feast with you, nurturing only themselves without fear. They are waterless clouds carried along by winds, trees in late autumn, fruitless, twice dead, pulled out by the roots, wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds, wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever. That sounds like a description of a modern-day political party that advocates the murder of 56 million human beings since Roe v. Wade in 1973. I won't mention that particular party's name. But what a great description that Jude uses here for these false teachers. They are like reefs at your love feast. Well, a reef is, there's two things you can say about a reef, two salient characteristics. You can't see them and they'll wreck your ship. Well, why couldn't they see these dangerous reefs at the love feast, these false teachers? It's because they came in by stealth, as Jude says in verse 4. They came in by stealth. In verse 4, Jude says, For some people who were designated for this judgment long ago have come in by stealth. They were secret. Now, Gill says that there's an implicit rebuke of the church, whatever church or churches that Jude is writing to here, because they allowed the reefs to be present. Well, I'm not so sure the church should be condemned for that, 
because the heretics came in by stealth and they didn't see them. But at any rate, after receiving this letter from Jude, it's clear they've got to get rid of these guys. They're like dangerous reefs at your love feast, and this makes it even more awful. The love feast, the agape feast, this is the communion meals. Remember, back then, the early church practiced a full meal with communion. It was not a sip and a chip, which is a terrible degradation of the sacrament that has happened throughout church history. I wish we would all go back to eating a fellowship meal with one with another. I know churches that do that. I have done it myself in the past. Unfortunately, I'm not present in a church that does it. We get to sip in a chip every week, a little shot glass of grape juice, a little soda cracker. No, it was a feast, and it was a communion feast, a sharing of each other's Christian lives with each other, and a sharing with the Lord, and these creeps, and they are really described with creepy language, they're in there eating that love feast with the Christians. That makes it doubly serious. As John Gill says, since they were eating love feasts, the heretics were deeply ingrained into the church. Once somebody's in there, it's hard to get them out. They were eating without fear. Why did they have no fear? They were still underground, and the church wasn't doing anything to discipline them. Either the church had not discovered them yet, although it's hard for me to believe as bad as these guys were that the church hadn't discovered them yet. And if they have discovered them yet, they haven't exercised church discipline to get rid of them. So that's why the heretics were without fear. They are waterless clouds. They look like they're going to give refreshing rain, but then they don't. Oh, I've got some good teaching for you, brothers, and then to give you crap. Here's a great quote from John Gill. Making it by their doctrines and practices to be a dark and cloudy day, a day of darkness and gloominess, a day of clouds and of thick darkness, a day of trouble, rebuke, and blasphemy, and for the storms, factions, rents, and divisions they made, as also for their situation and height, soaring aloft and being vainly puffed up in their fleshly mind, as well as for their sudden destruction disappearing at once, and to clouds without water, because destitute of the true grace of God and of true evangelical doctrine, which, like rain, is from above, from heaven, and which, like that, refreshes, softens, and fructifies, or fructifies. It's, uh, I tell you that John Gilly knows how to, he knows how to write good quotations. The doctrine of God is compared to rain, in Deuteronomy 32.2, as Adam Clark points out, Let my teaching fall like rain, and my words settle like dew, like gentle rain on new grass, and showers on tender plants. Not so the heretics. They're waterless clouds. No water coming from them. They're also said to blow like winds, or to be carried along by winds. They're waterless clouds carried along by winds, Jude says in verse 12, which means they aren't stable. If you think about wind, it's not very stable, is it? It goes this way, it goes that way could refer to the false doctrines, unstable false doctrines, the heretics' own lust. They lust after one thing, they lust after something else. So it could be the heretics' false teaching or their false morals. Or it could be Satan's temptations. He tempts you left and he tempts you right. He tempts you up and tempts you down. Whatever it is, the wind is not unstable. These false prophets aren't stable. And then in verse 12, Jude said these false prophets are twice dead, which is an interesting Description, twice dead, what does that mean? Well, here's some options. It could be they were thoroughly and entirely dead, because once you're dead, you're dead again. Ooh, that means you're gone. could be, more specifically, they were both dead. They were dead both physically and spiritually, because obviously they were spiritually dead, and they're getting ready to be destroyed. They're going to be physically dead. Or it could be another option. They were naturally dead by birth. They were born in the sin. Then they were, they were born to, dead to Jesus after they apostatize. Well, that's very close to saying they were. Well, no, that's a different option. They're dead spiritually when they're born, and they're dead spiritually after they apostatize, or they're doubly dead. 
Well, whatever it means is they were really dead. And interestingly enough, physical trees are twice dead. In the autumn when their leaves and fruit die, and then when they, if they are plucked up by the roots, then they're really dead. They're not going to grow fruit again. Twice dead. Jude continues on with his natural analogies, talking about these false prophets. In verse 13, he calls them wild ways of the sea, foaming up their shameful deeds. Here's some options as to the analogy with wild waves. John Gill says it refers to their swelling pride, vanity, boasting, and ostentation. And I would add this comment. A wild wave is a wave that can cause serious damage, like a tsunami. They're powerful, so they're proud and they're powerful and destructive. Stay away from them. They're said to be foaming. Wild waves of the sea foaming up their shameful deeds. Well, if you ever watched Oceans at the Beach, which I have many times when there's a lot of the wind blows hard and the weather's a little rough and the waves come in rough, there's foam all over the beach because the water churning up turns up, it puts air in the water and makes foam everywhere. And so that's a good, good analogy, foaming up their shameful deeds. In other words, they're not just waves, gentle rollers. They're storming, crashing, wild waves, which think of a storm, and then they foam up their shameful deeds. Here's, this is, Jameson Fawcett Brown says that Jude is, has Isaiah 57:20 in mind when he wrote that. But the wicked are like the storm-tossed sea, for it cannot be still, and its waters churn up mire and muck doesn't say foam, but, you know, mire and muck, mud. It, I've watched the ocean many times when it's really stormy. The waves come in and they're brown because they're full of, it, they, it, the waves suck up the sand from below. All right, we go to the next description that Jude uses. These false apostles, these false teachers, these false prophets are wandering stars. Now, some people said they that's, that's referring to meteors or comets because they kind of, if you look at a meteor, uh, what do you call that, a falling star? It kind of burns through the atmosphere with no particular orbit. Or a comet comes in, there's no orbit, it just kind of makes a long streak through the sky. Here's a quote from John Gill. Instead of moving on in a regular orbit as lights to the world, bursting forth on the world like erratic comets, these false teachers are, or rather meteors of fire with a strange glare and then doomed to fall back again into the blackness of gloom. Boy, that guy can write. NIV Study Bible says these false teachers were, quote, as shooting stars appear in the sky only to fly off into eternal oblivion. So these false teachers are destined for the darkness of eternal hell. Now, there's one thing I have about that interpretation, and it's reasonable, is that the Greek word there, asteris in the plural, I looked it up in a different context in the lexicon. It means star. It doesn't mean meteor or comet. However, Jude puts an adjective on it. He says they are wandering stars so maybe like we say a shooting star is a meteor because it's not a star it's a shooting star a wandering star could refer to these meteors and comets who are so unstable they're like the wind blowing this way and that the stars don't have a regular orbit because they they are not under authority they're not under the authority of, the, of a regular orbit if you will the regular orbit of orthodoxy these wandering stars for whom the blackness of darkness is reserved forever that's their fate hell Eternal darkness, again, hell is sometimes characterized as fire. Here, it sounds like it's talking about hell, which is darkness, which is the opposite of fire. So you can't have both of them. But the point is, it's just going to be real bad. You remember in verse 6, the demons are going to end up in darkness too, or reserved in darkness. 
Jude 1 6 says this, and the angels who did not keep their own position but abandoned their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains in deep darkness for the judgment on the great day. Now, that doesn't mean that they're down in a pit where it's dark and they're in darkness wherever they are, whether they're demons roaming the earth or in a pit, wherever they are. They're chained to God, they're God's slaves. They're in spiritual darkness, if you will. This idea seems to be barred. Let's just say it's a parallel passage in Second Peter 2, Second Peter 2, 4. For God didn't spare the angels who sinned, but cast them into hell and delivered them in chains of utter darkness to be kept for judgment. Light is the symbol of God. Darkness is the symbol of the devil. That's where these false teachers are. Well, Jude doesn't leave any doubt. These teachers need to be dealt with, and they're enemies of the Church of Christ, even though they're eating in the Lord's Supper. I mean, you know, this, this happens all the time. I just heard of a church that welcomed with open arms a Christian who wanted to, quote-unquote, marry her girlfriend. They're clouds without darkness. Any church that does that, they're reefs, hidden, causing destruction, and hidden in the church, wild ways foaming up their shameful deeds. We go to verses 14 and 15. And Enoch in the seventh generation from Adam prophesied about them, about the false teachers. Look, the Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict them of all their ungodly acts that they have done in an ungodly way and of all the harsh things ungodly sinners have said against him. Now, the before we get into the question of where this quotation came from, let's just point out what the purpose of it is. Destruction of the bad guys. The Lord coming with thousands of his angels to execute judgment, to convict them of the ungodly acts convicting them of the, all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have said against God. That's talking about the false teachers. So it's very easy to see what the application of, that Jude is making here. But now we've got to go into what does this mean, Enoch in the seventh generation. Well, let's talk about Enoch. He was a historical figure. Actually, there were two Enochs. There was the third generation Enoch, and there was the seventh generation Enoch. We're talking about the seventh generation Enoch. The word itself means instructed or trained up. John Gill deduces from that that Enoch was probably instructed in true religion by his father. And in my humble opinion, I think people try to squeeze too much meaning out of names. I know a, I had a student one time about 20 years ago in Shanghai named Yang Bing Bing. And Bing Bing meant soldier, soldier. And she was about as much of a soldier as a toothpick was. The slightest zephyr of a wind would blow her into outer space. She was so tiny. She ended up being a lawyer, not a soldier. So, I don't think we can prove anything by names. Let's look at some scriptures about Enoch. Genesis 5.18, Jared, this is a genealogy. Jared was 162 years old when he fathered Enoch. Genesis 5.21-22, through 22, Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah, the oldest man in the Bible. Enoch was his father. And after the birth of Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. Now, Enoch is famously said to be the only person besides Elijah to be taken straight to heaven without dying. The verse that is often adduced to prove that is Genesis 5.24. Enoch walked with God, then he was not there because God took him. God took him? Does that prove that Enoch was directly translated into heaven without having to go into the grave? It could merely mean that God took him in death. God took him. We use that expression today to refer to those who die physically. If I say God took Susie Q, that doesn't mean that she went straight up to heaven without having to go through her funeral and, and being placed in a grave. But that's just background. Where did Jude get this quote from? Well, before I do that, let's point out that this Enoch is not the Enoch in the line of Cain, as the NIV Study Bible points out. 
Genesis 4.17, Cain was intimate with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch. That's not the Enoch we're talking about. That's the third generation Enoch. The third, excuse me, the, well, the third in the line from Adam, Enoch. But this Enoch that Jude is quoting from is the Enoch in the line of Seth, as the NIV study Bible points out. This is in Genesis 5.8.24, the verses I just quoted to you, Enoch being the, fa the father of Methuselah and so forth. And I could give you some other quotes, which I'm not going to... Jameson Fawcett Brown says, note that the seven is the sacred number. I don't know what that means. That's a little factoid that I don't think means anything. NIV Study Bible says it's seven. If you count Adam as the first generation, you get down to our Enoch here. It's the seventh generation Enoch. Now, having said all that, where did Jude get his quote from? Well, here's one option. The Book of Enoch, which is an apocryphal book. Now, Gill denies that, and NIV Study Bible affirms that. So, we have a controversy here. TheChristianCourier.com says a, a passage quite similar to Joe's quotation is found in the Apocryphal Book of Enoch. Then Gill takes exactly the opposite view and says there's nothing in the Book of Enoch that sounds like what Jude is saying here. Well, there's a direct contradiction. Here's Gill's take on it. He says that the Book of Enoch is mentioned in some of the writings of the Jews, and there's an actual fragment of the Book of Enoch that exists, but it's not much. And the Book of Enoch is spurious. It's, not a par it's, it's apocryphal. It's spurious. It's not canonical. Here's a quote from Gill of the book of Enoch from which this prophecy is thought to have been taken. Much has been said, but as the work is apocryphal and of no authority, I shall not burden my page with extracts. <laughs> well, I guess I'll burden my podcast a little bit with some extracts, with some discussion of the book of Enoch. Enoch. John Gill says, as I said, that the book of Enoch does not, does not have anything like this prophecy that Jude mentions in the book of Enoch which directly contradicts ChristianCourier.com, which is a, apparently a reputable apologetics website, says, yeah, there's a passage in the Book of Enoch that says that. Well, I'm going to assume it's the Book of Enoch, despite what Gill says, because it doesn't really matter. If it wasn't the Book of Enoch, it could have been Jewish tradition. The prophecy could have been handed down from generation to generation, as John Gill says. ChristianCourier.com says that it could be something that came directly from the Holy Spirit, which I don't believe. Or it could have been an earlier source from which the book of Enoch drew and from which Jude drew. I don't believe that either. could be, logically. But wherever you Jude got it from, it was in full credit with the Jews because he quoted it very confidently, figuring that Jews are going to be impressed by it. And because the Jews gave it full credit, it was appropriate for Jude to cite it, as Gill says. Now, the NIV Study Bible says that doesn't mean that Jude thought that the book of Enoch was inspired and inerrant. Of course, not any more than Paul thought Aratus and Menander and Epimenides, the pagan poets he quoted, were inspired in error. They obviously weren't. I mean, one of them was a famous Greek comic who wrote comic plays, which were a little bit, I guess, were a little bit rowdy. Obviously, was not inspired. So Jude didn't think the Book of Enoch was inspired. There's another question. Well, the fact that Jude quoted an uninspired book, does that mean that Jude himself was uninspired? No. Paul quoted three pagan poets. Does that mean Paul was uninspired? Of course not. Okay, so we're going to assume that Jude is quoting the book of Enoch here. And in case we forgot what the quotation is, it's this. The Lord comes with thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and convict them all of their ungodly acts. Again, the whole point of the quotation of the book of Enoch is to show judgment on the bad guys. Now, the Lord comes with his holy ones. When is that talking about? Well, in the study Bible says the second coming. Adam Clark says the original book of Enoch the quotation meant coming in judgment on the antediluvians. 
about the coming Noahic flood. God is coming with judgment with his 10,000 angels to wipe you out with the flood, Adam Clark says. That's the original context. And then Jude is said to to be taking the original context and applying it to the second coming. Well, that's pretty sketchy. Who knows? The purpose of the quotation is what's important. The false teachers are going to be judged. Now, the 10,000 holy ones, by the way, this quote seems to be coming from Daniel. Daniel 7.10 says, A river of fire was flowing, coming out from his presence. Thousands upon thousands served him. 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court was convened and the books were opened. I don't know. I don't think so, actually, that Clark's right about that, because oftentimes thousands or myriads or ten thousands are mentioned in Daniel and Revelation, too. It doesn't necessarily mean, mean coming at the end of time. That's too speculative for my taste. Now, the ten thousand holy ones, when you see holy ones, that can be saints. If it's saints, that means they're coming to be reunited with their bodies at the second coming. Or it could be angels. I suspect it's angels. Again, that's all speculation. I'll leave that to you in case you're interested. Now let's go to verse 16 and we'll finish up Jude chapter 1. These people, these false prophets, these false teachers, are discontented grumblers, walking according to their desires. Their mouths utter arrogant words, flattering people for their own advantage. John Gill's got a great quote about these grumblers. They are, quote, grunting out their murmurs like swine. Whew, that's a great quote. They're flattering people. The heretics were suck-ups. They were open to acquire money, influence, power, and friends. And so they put on their sweet smiles and says, I've got some teaching for you. You're so smart. You're such a good teacher. And you're such a good student. You're such a good Christian. Let me teach you. As they seduce them to their destruction. Ladies and gentlemen, I have now finished Jude 1, verses 9 through 16. We'll finish up the book in our next audio verses 17 through 25 in those verses jude will give his readers a call to persevere in the face of all the opposition that they were receiving I hope you stay tuned for that audio and I hope you enjoyed this one <laughs>